This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Psalm 133. Psalm 133, nearing the end of the series of studies in the Psalms of Ascent, 134. Uh, Lord willing, we'll get next week being the final one in that series of Psalms, Pilgrim Psalms. Psalms reflecting on and uh, sung during pilgrimage to Jerusalem, reflecting on the journey itself as well as the destination. And of course, uh, while taking place in the literal context of those feast pilgrimages, uh, having a great deal to say as well for about the spiritual pilgrimage that was not only theirs, but now ours in Christ Jesus. Today, we're looking at Psalm 133, verses 1 through 3. Hear the word of God. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, as we come to this uh, brief and yet full psalm, we pray that your spirit would teach us. We pray, Father, that our hearts would be humble before you. We pray that you would uh, reveal to us and impress upon us those truths that you would have us to know, Lord, from your word and the application of those truths in various ways in each of our lives. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. The word behold draws attention. It means look at this. But it can also convey a little bit a sense of surprise. And that may be the case here because, precisely because, brothers dwelling in unity can at times seem to be something of a rarity. We see that through the scriptures, uh, literally, among literal brothers. The first instance of brothers we see dwelling together ends not in unity, but in murder, as Cain kills Abel. Uh, we, we see uh, sibling rivalry uh, between Jacob and Esau. Uh, we see uh, the same in uh, a family of a number of brothers uh, where many of them are so jealous and irritated with their younger brother that they consider killing Joseph, but instead to get some profit out of him, 
decide instead to sell him into slavery. David's family, David as a young man, goes out to visit his older brothers in the army, and they're irritated by his presence. They harass him, and they tell him to go home. Even in our Lord's own family, once you get beyond the beauties of Bethlehem, things seem to be a little bit strained as Jesus' brothers come and interrupt him in his public ministry to take him away because they think he is out of his mind. And then later they speak mockingly to him, telling him to get up to the feast in Jerusalem because after all, if he wants to be a public figure, he needs to get out there and get himself known. And certainly we can look beyond the pages of Scripture to see that all too often strife, not unity, seems to prevail, whether we're talking about literal brothers and sisters in uh, families today, maybe your own family, one degree or another, uh, or brothers and sisters in the family of God, where all too often we see Instead of unity, strife and division. Behold, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Well, what's he getting at here? What is he trying to show us? Well, he's trying to encourage us toward unity by showing us the blessing that it is. And to motivate us to do everything we can to promote unity because of the blessing that it is. And as we look at this, this passage, there's just three short verses here, uh, pretty full ones, but they begin in the first place in verse one with a simple declaration of the blessedness of unity, of dwelling together in unity. Now we look at that and we think, what is he getting at when he speaks of unity? Uh, as you look at it in scriptural context, uh, it's interesting, you look at a couple of places uh, earlier in the scriptures, Abraham and Lot, uh, they couldn't live together. Their flocks were so great, that, and the, the resources in terms of pasturage that they required so large, that their own herdsmen were fighting with each other simply because there wasn't enough to go around, which is one of the reasons that they separated uh, to try to have enough pasturage for their animals. And uh, later Esau and Jacob, after they come back together, they're both wealthy, have large herds, and they simply can't live in the same place. So this idea of unity may have to do simply with, with enough fruitfulness so that everybody can be together and live in close proximity. In the context of the Psalms of Ascent, it as he's already indicated in, in earlier in the Psalms of Ascent, talking about Jerusalem as the place where the tribes go up in uh, 122 verse 4, simply being struck by various families, uh, representatives of the different tribes coming together in Jerusalem and, uh, and interacting with each other, glad to see each other, and just commenting on that spectacle, at least for the time, of the unity as they come together. Well, what's true then uh, certainly should be true now, that as God's people, uh, we should enjoy unity as much as is possible with ourselves. I'll talk about that more in just a, a moment. But it's not even a command. It's just an exclamation. How good it is. How pleasant it is when that is the case. Now, when he's talking about this unity, he's not talking about uniformity. 
He's not saying that we're all the same, but he is saying that uh, in the diversity, uh, even remarkable diversity represented in this room today, that it is a, is a good thing, it's a pleasant thing when there is an overarching unity that binds us together as the people of God. How good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Certainly in the context of the church, we're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. Now it's good when it's in your literal blood family, certainly, but the point seems to be unity among the people of God. That is something that's good. It's something that's pleasant, something we should seek for. Uh, Not too long ago, uh, our ordination vows were changed to include the word unity. Do you promise to be zealous and faithful in maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church, whatever persecution or opposition may arise unto you on that account? Ruling elder vow is similar that we vow to do all we can to promote and to maintain the purity, the peace, the unity of the church. How good and how pleasant it is when brothers live in unity with one another. Sometimes it helps to understand the reality of that statement when you consider the opposite, how bad and how miserable it is when they don't. Uh, I can think of any number of cases uh, in, in, in congregational settings where uh, instead of instead of unity, uh, there was strife. I remember years ago, I may have been still in college, I might have been in seminary, I don't remember, uh, when my pastor asked me, he was involved in a commission dealing with a church that was divided and uh, in a very bad way. And he asked me to go and preach for them uh, in an evening service. And I didn't know all of the details. I didn't need to know. But I knew that the church was divided. I knew that there were problems. And I actually was very concerned about going and uh, somehow getting caught in the middle. And I voiced that concern to my pastor who was sending me there to preach that evening. And he said, oh, don't worry. Only one side will be there. So it was a very peaceful and pleasant evening, but then again, only one side was there. More recently, I can recall uh, a case I was involved in, uh, in dealing with a situation where there was, there was one man in a small church basically uh, trying to take over and run the church as he saw fit, and uh, we were involved trying to sort that out. Along the same lines, uh, just this past week, I saw a blog article. The title of the blog article was The Most Dangerous Man in the Church. Now, it could be a man or a woman, but that was the title of the blog post, The Most Dangerous Man in the Church. Well, that's interesting. Who is it? You want to find out. Well, he says I'm not talking about an individual. I'm talking about a class of people. Now, you have all different kinds of people in the church, but in his opinion, the most dangerous person, man or woman, in the church is the person who is unteachable. person who is unteachable. They may know a lot, at least in their heads, uh, although often it seems the case it really has not moved down to transform the heart. And yet they're, they're largely unteachable. They tend to eclipse the gospel because the very nature of believing the gospel is an ongoing process of continuing to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's sort of the antithesis of the gospel until we're in heaven anyway to think that we have arrived. 
Uh, he tends to be a critical kind of person, uh, not really listening to the sermon or a Sunday school lesson to learn or to grow, but to find ammunition for criticism, to be the Monday morning preacher, Monday morning teacher, picking apart what was taught. Tends to be a divisive person, pitting people against one another. The most dangerous person in the church, the person who is unteachable, who, who really does not have the humility to recognize that there's always more to learn and always more application to make of the truth that we have. Now, that's not a modern phenomenon. Uh, reading Third John about Diotrephes, this was a person who uh, John describes as putting himself first, as uh, refusing to submit to authority. So this type is not uh, unusual. This type was in the church from the beginning. And to make sure we're not that type or any other type that would lead to division, promoting disunity, promoting strife, stirring up difficulty in the church. Because it's a good and pleasant thing when brothers live in unity, not uniformity. Uh, not absolute agreement. There may be disagreements, different opinions, different perspectives, and yet an overarching unity in Christ in the church. The declaration of the blessedness of it is uh, where he begins, but then he moves on in the next couple of verses, uh, in verse 2, to provide an illustration of that blessing. A couple of similes. You'll remember from your English classes the difference between similes and metaphors. A metaphor is when it just says it is something. Uh, a simile is when it says it's like something, and that's the case here. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. There you get some good parallelism. Uh, in, in an action and a progression, even in the, in the, in the parallelism. It's precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, that was the reason, of course, for the Old Testament lesson earlier, what seems like a somewhat obscure passage describing this anointing oil that was to be used uh, in different ways, and particularly for the ordination of the high priest. Well, what's the point of this comparison, of this simile? How is the blessedness of unity like that oil or like that situation that he describes here in verse 2? It's like the precious oil on the head. Well, we'd have to go back and say, well, what, what, what did the oil represent? What was that about? What did it mean? Well, the oil in the Old Testament represented a number of different things. Certainly in this context, uh, it may represent the consecration to God of the high priest, the ordination, which is simply setting him apart for this calling, for this function among God's people. And so when he says that this blessing of unity is like that oil, it may indicate that that blessing of unity, the presence of unity itself, is something that consecrates, something that sets us apart uh, from the world. You also notice that as, he, as the passage Mike read earlier from Exodus was describing that oil, it was aromatic. It had a very pleasant aroma or fragrance to it. It was a unique recipe. The Lord said, now don't make this stuff up and just you know use it anywhere. This is to be uh, a particular 
recipe used for concocting this oil that's to be used in this setting, what would that do? Since it smelled nice, it would create a certain association of that aroma with that use, with with that event. You all probably know how powerful the sense of smell is and how you can scent, how how you can smell something and immediately associate that with a person or with a place or an event i have uh, uh opportunities of course regularly to go into the hospital various hospitals and when i go in i you know wash my hands and there's that hospital soap the disinfectant soap, and they all seem to have it. It must all come from the same place because it always has this this distinct smell to it. Not an unpleasant smell, not a clean smell, a hospital soap smell. Every time, nearly without fail, pretty much every time I go into a hospital and use that soap and wash my hands, I'm immediately back at a certain place. Greenville Memorial Hospital, Greenville, South Carolina, where our son was born and spent the first week of his life in the neonatal intensive care unit. And before we could go in and visit him, there was a little station just inside the door where you had to go and scrub your hands and scrub your forearms up to the elbow and put on a little gown, and then you could go further back into the neonatal unit. Same soap. Every time I smell that soap, it brings back that association of going to see my newborn son in the neonatal unit there in uh, Greenville Memorial Hospital. That aroma, that distinct aroma, that distinct recipe would be associated with certain things having to do with the Lord and here having to do with the ordination of, of the high priest, of Aaron. If there's any significance to it spreading and running down, it maybe it's just that the, the, the blessing of unity tends to spread. But there should be a certain sense of, of consecration, of association, of unity in the church with the Lord, with his saving work, with what he has done for us in Christ, that that unity reminds us. It brings us back to remembering the grace of God, remembering the blessedness of being part of his people and being one body and a united body in Christ. But then he goes on to demonstrate or give us another simile, another comparison in verse 3. It's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. What does that mean? What's the point of that comparison? Well, Mount Hermon was uh, the highest peak in the Lebanon range north in the northern part of Israel, north of Israel, the northernmost reach of Joshua's conquest. Uh, It was over 9,000 feet high, so it's a pretty high mountain, often snow-capped, uh, usually some snow in different places on it year-round, but a place of moisture, place representing heavy dew. In fact, the name itself, Hermon, has to has means something like devotion, and uh, perhaps the, the sense here is of heavy dew there on Hermon, falling on Zion, a more arid location, farther south, drier. Uh, and yet uh, the blessedness of unity is like that same moisture coming down in those more arid places, promoting life, promoting fruitfulness, uh, blessedness. And so just as the moisture provides fruitfulness for the ground, unity provides fruitfulness, uh, a, a growing, fertile environment 
for God's people. He doesn't specify the exact point. He doesn't say exactly, but that's that's the reason he, he makes the comparison, to make you think. What is what is the connection? What is he getting at when he says it's like this or it's like that? Uh, like much poetry, it's designed simply to make you think. What are they? How are they alike? How would they be dissimilar? And those seem to be some of the some of the points of the comparison that he's making. Now, look at this, and we see this in Psalm 133. It's not even a command to unity. It's simply expressing the blessedness, the happiness, the goodness, and pleasantness. When there's unity, when there's not strife, when we when we get along the way that we should. But certainly the scriptures speak to this unity in other places. Um, you're well familiar probably with Jesus' uh, prayer in John 17 and uh, the statements that he makes there. John 17, verse 22, he says, The glory you've given me, I've given to them, his disciples, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you've loved me. Jesus prays for a oneness among his people. Uh, sometimes I think that his desire is, is perhaps misunderstood. Um, sometimes spe- people speak of, of denominations as though that was a, a, a denial or a betrayal of Jesus' prayer. I don't think so. I, I think organizationally, inevitably, the church is going to be divided uh, in some way or another, if only by language differences or n- national boundaries. Uh, it's inevitable that there is some separate organization and uh, division just into different groups. Now, sometimes that arises out of doctrinal differences. And certainly where we can try to be on the same page doctrinally, we, we should try to be on the same page. Obviously, the scriptures uh, don't teach two things about baptism, that you should baptize infants or that you shouldn't baptize infants. It teaches one thing. And, and, and people in either camp are trying to understand the scriptures and understand what it teaches. Um, but our denominational divisions, groups, a, a denial of Jesus' prayer, I'm not sure that they are. However, if a Presbyterian has, uh, refuses something to do with a brother or sister who's a Baptist, then I think that is a denial of what Jesus is saying here. I think that the unity transcends denominational boundaries, and I know that you all probably enjoy good fellowship with brothers and sisters who are of a different denomination, and yet there's a, a, a unity and a fellowship and a oneness there in Christ Jesus that transcends those differences. And so I think that's much more to the point of what Jesus is saying. Yes, it would be ideal. It would be wonderful. It was, it was just one church through the world, and we all agreed in doctrine. But this is a fallen world. And we come away from the Scriptures with some different understandings and certainly different languages, different locations. Uh, and yet, there should be a oneness with those who truly are a brother or sister in Christ, who hold to the teachings of the, of the Scriptures and, and belief in Christ of the, the, the biblical gospel, that there is a oneness there that transcends other differences and distinctions. The Apostle Paul uh, on unity, just a couple of quotations from Philippians. Uh, the, there are others where he speaks to the point. Um, 
I love his statements uh, at the beginning of Philippians 2, verses 1 and 2. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And it's in that context, in chapter 4, verse 2, that he says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. See, Paul was, was concerned that the Lord's people be one, that there not be unnecessary, unnecessarily uh, strife or divisions or quarreling, so forth. Our sin nature so often gets in the way and creates divisions where there should not be divisions. Uh, the Apostle John, uh, in 1 John, uh, just to cite a couple of examples from 1 John 4, several verses, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Verse 20, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That emphasis uh, of love among the people of God. Now, again, the psalm doesn't command unity. It merely expresses the delight that it brings. Uh, and yet, the implication is there in the explicit teaching in other places that we should do all that we can to uh, to promote unity and oneness and, and remove strife and dissension and division in the body of Christ. How do we do that? Well, I think the passage that Mike read earlier, our New Testament reading, lays out a magnificent template for that. Uh, the, the New Testament reading, Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17, uh, a magnificent passage if you're looking for something extended to memorize. Uh, you, you could do... Couldn't do much better than to memorize Colossians 3, 1 through 17. But he starts out just by reminding us that we've died, our lives are hidden with Christ and God. He starts with the theological truth uh, of who we are, that we uh, are united in one Savior. We've died with him, been raised to a new life in him. Our life is hidden with him, and when he appears, our lives, as they really are, will be seen. So we start with that doctrinal foundation. We are one in Christ Jesus. But then he goes on uh, so characteristically to talk about putting to death certain things and putting on other things, putting to death that, that which belongs to our fallen nature. This is verse 5. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. It warns us on account of these the wrath of God is coming. and uh, They are characteristic of who we are in Adam, in our fallenness. But verse 8, you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Not lying to each other, but putting on who we are in Christ. And, And recognizing that Christ removes divisions. Verse 11, there's not Greek or Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, black, white, north, south, whatever. Uh, these divisions are removed in Christ that otherwise would and often do separate people here in this world. So recognizing, first of all, the doctrinal foundation of unity in Christ, recognizing the necessity of dealing with sin in our lives, which is so often what arises to create division, friction, separation, splits, in the church, but then positively, verse 12 and following, then put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, 
humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, loving one another, letting the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, letting the word of Christ dwell in our hearts, and uh, as he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God, whatever you do. Do it in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we're putting to death the things we ought to be putting to death. And if we were putting on the things that we ought to be putting on, think of how far that goes in the church to enable us to live together in unity as God's people. And what a good and pleasant thing that is for us and what a magnificent witness it bears to the to the world. How much damage is done in that witness when churches are at war among themselves. The psalm ends, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. There in Zion, there among the people of God, God has commanded this blessing, life forevermore. We're going to be together in Christ for a long time. We need to learn to get along with each other. God has commanded that blessing for us, life forevermore. And of course, in glory, our sin natures will be gone and dealt with in a way, in such a way that it'll, it'll be easier then. But we need to be in training now. We need to recognize as citizens of heaven, as God's people in Christ, we need to know the goodness and the pleasantness of dwelling in unity. It starts with the word, behold. It's kind of surprising, but sit up and take notice. Look at this. Charles Spurgeon comments on that use of the word behold. He says, it's a wonder, seldom seen, therefore behold it. It may be seen, for it is the characteristic of real saints, therefore fail not to inspect it. It is well worthy of admiration. Pause and gaze upon it. It will charm you into imitation, therefore note it well. God looks on with approval, therefore consider it with attention. Let's pray. Father, we pray that we would gaze on it and consider it, uh, but Lord, above all, that we would practice it. And I pray, Father, uh, for our congregation, uh, for the PCA, for your church, that there would be the, the, the good and pleasant unity that is a blessing to your people, that is a witness to the world, and that is a sweet savor to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.